Somebody else's little struggle could be a very big one for that person. And you would never know that he goes through that. The same officer that refused us three times called my father and he said, look, in 50 years of my work here, nobody ever overturned my decision. I don't know where you have connection in such high places. I don't understand it. I cannot understand it, but you're free to go. Those few little acts changed the whole destiny. And just, I think it's a lesson to never give up. Just because things have been going a certain way doesn't mean it can't change when there's a will, there's a way. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to, to From the Inside Out. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> yeah. It's going to happen sometimes, you know. <laughs> this episode is very meaningful to me. And no doubt this is meaningful to Ida, but it's just really special to be able to share with you an everyday hero who happens to be Ida's mother. Yep. One of the unique things about our platform is that we bring guests who are world-renowned and also guests who you might never have heard of. And we believe that bringing our everyday heroes serves as a reminder that not all heroes wear capes. It isn't only our well-known public figures who change the world. We believe that all of us, you and I, have the capacity to make a difference and change our world for the better. We all do, otherwise we wouldn't be here. It's true. In our last episode with Tulushkin, my mother kept coming up and I felt that she'd be a good person, such a good person to bring here because she has so much to share and so much to give and most of what she does is under the radar. And I hope that in bringing you my mother's story, um, which you know it took some convincing to get her to be on this platform, but I'm so glad that she did this interview and um, it will probably be an exclusive one where you won't you probably won't hear her anywhere else and um, but I really hope that what she has to share will be impactful for you and will enable you to um, take some lessons from her experience and apply them into your life um, to enhance your life and make it more meaningful and more beautiful her and my father received many accolades and awards including an award that was given only to two people in Canada by the Minister of Justice. His name is Erwin Kotler. It's called the Citation for Citizenship Award. Actually presented to my father, who was the first Jew to receive it, actually. It was for their contributions to strengthening the Canadian community. And it's, you know, it's a big Kiddush Hashem. And they received a the Diamond Jubilee Medal that's actually given by the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, that recognizes their contributions to the Commonwealth. Anyway, so that's also only given to a handful of people. And when I got married, David, my husband, noticed all these awards, like he saw them, and he was surprised that they didn't have a building. Your parents, you mean? My parents, yeah, yeah. Like for to run their operations because most of what they did, they did it in our house. He basically convinced them to, to get a building and we are proud to have our names on that building. And it was really special for me to see this happen. And it actually took a while to convince them to let us do this for them because they you know they're a lot better at giving than they are at receiving but eventually they understood the importance of having a, a place to call home for the russian center for the russian jews and it, you know today it's an amazing space building and anyone who's been there knows how um, amazing the energy is there thanks for sharing all that Ida, because your mother is so humble she didn't share the building that she has and the recognition she's received for doing so much for the canadian community it's interesting when you said she has a hard time receiving I, i'm not surprised because you can tell throughout the episode that she's just such a giver and all her daughters are too i went to a class on bitachon 
And Rabbi Taub had shared a quote. He said, we didn't come here to get from the world. We came here to give to the world. So your mother's living that. But I think we have to learn how to receive too. Yeah, yeah. But I think that if, if I'm a true giver, I think by nature, I know how to receive because it is a reciprocal relationship. When someone gives to you, you recognize that you're giving them the opportunity to give, which essentially is right. a form of giving in you, itself. You want to be the giver. You always want to be the one that gives, not to have to receive. But exactly like you say, when you believe in that we're here to give, you're able to receive. Right, because when you're receiving, you realize that you're giving the giver an opportunity to give. Yeah. So you're also giving at the same time. Um, but this is a topic we should definitely get into. We're not going to get sidetracked right now. We're trying not to, but I, I do want to touch upon this class, Betachan. The reason I want to just bring it up here and share with you my highlights is because I find whenever we do an episode, which is every couple of weeks, whatever I'm like learning or experiencing, it's amazing how it relates to who we're interviewing or whatever discussion Ida and I decide to have in an episode. I, I just feel so blessed that this is what happens. <laughs> I think you feel the same way that whatever yeah, we're going yeah. through relates to whether it's the topic we discuss or the person we're interviewing. And the day before this interview, I went to a class in Evergreen upstate where Rabbi Taub gave a class on Betachan, which is trust, trust in Hashem, trust in God. And also Getsy Felig, who you want to interview with his wife spoke about how it affected his life personally so it wasn't only a rabbi talking and lecturing it was one of us who had experienced bitachan and the quotes that i wrote down that i felt were my highlights exemplified your mother um, i just want to share a couple of them with you so listen to this you know the feeling of complete relief when all your troubles are behind you bitachan means having that feeling now so just to meditate on that thought and you can think about that as you're listening to this, that's first of all. I think that's what we're all striving for. We should all aspire to that. Something else in this class, Rabbi Taub was sharing, basically that destruction makes way for creation and it's a process to foster growth. Like the more deeply you plow, the greater the growth, growth that follows and that sometimes in that time where there's that destruction in our lives or we're, we're plowing, that's really just a snapshot. Like we don't really see the full movie. We're seeing a snapshot. We're just seeing a picture. In this episode, we actually get to listen to a movie. We hear some of the snapshots and the struggles that your mom has been through, but then we also get to see the full picture of the family she's brought up and the results of the plowing that she's done. And so I just felt so moved by hearing this class and then hearing it put into action through your mother's words and her story in her life. I really like that analogy of the movie. Looking back, it's much easier to understand in the grander scheme of things, you know, why things happened as they did. But you mentioned Shays Taub and that reminded me, I actually saw um, I, in one of his talks, he said something like, you have to hope that your challenge is bad enough that it forces you to change. Because yeah. sometimes it's not, it's, it, it doesn't cross that threshold of difficulty and pain that forces you to let go of the past and forces you to let go of the things holding you back. And in that space, people usually stay in their comfort zone. And I think that's so deep and profound because it validates the struggles that we go through and it gives them a role in our lives. Like this struggle, the, the harder it is, the more difficult it is, 
bigger a chance I have of transforming myself and transforming my life and bringing more joy into my life. Well, I just want to add here that Mrs. Sirota has shared some of her challenges here, not all of them, but you've heard some of her story and you, you will get a picture, but within her life, she's experienced other challenges as well. Because of the challenges she's been through, you will, you'll be able to feel the depth of her thoughtfulness and the depth of her strength. One of the things standing out to me is that she's also able to tune into somebody else's challenge, even though it's not her own and be able to come from a place of compassion and understanding. That's something that was very touching to me. I think that's a great lesson for us to be able to be compassionate to others, even with um, challenges that we cannot relate to. And I also felt like this would be a great follow-up to the episode with Joseph Telushkin because he had shared with us a new concept, moral imagination. If you haven't listened to the episode, you must go to the previous episode. Basically, in a nutshell, he is going to be writing a book where he shares stories from others, where we can apply the morals they had in their lives and use it in our lives today. And he wants us to find stories to send to him too. So if you have a story, send it in. But we have a story right here on this episode that is Ida's mother's story. You can use your imagination to see how you can apply all her beautiful qualities into your life. There's so many moral lessons. Also the timing, I happen to have been reading Rebetz and Hana, the Rebbe's mother, which was touched upon in her story. I've been reading her memoirs and I found a lot of similarities in their strength, in their thoughtfulness, in their character traits that we can all learn from. And um, this is my first time meeting her, though not in person. I was so happy to have this opportunity to get to know a bit more, Ida, of where you come from. And thank you for this opportunity to share her story. Well, first of all, it's something that is very special for me to share you know my mother and her story with you all also I yeah I really wanted you Rifka to take the reins in this interview because I already know her story so well and I felt like maybe there's there are parts that I take for granted or that I wouldn't remember to share and so I thought it would be great to have you know you lead the conversation and because you had never met her before so this is a new person for you and I feel like it was so nice to have us both. And I feel like we do this in general with our guests is one of us usually knows more about the person than the other. So we can bring both perspectives to the conversation. And I think this is a great example of that. I think you did great. I hope so. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Enjoy everybody. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. And it was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of growth, self-awareness, and connection. Our goal is to bring you insights, research-backed tools, tips, and shortcuts, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul. From the inside out. Hi. How are you? So nice to see you. Nice to see you. You have never met in person, right? No, we never met in person. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. So this is... This is the closest we get yeah. so far. <laughs> but I, I do feel close to you because I have such a special relationship and friendship with Ida. Yes. Um, it's like your sisters, you know, that's how it feels about you. That's and how I feel too. Special. Soul sisters. And um, Ida always speaks so highly of you with so much respect and love. 
And it has come up quite a few times. She felt you'd be an inspiration to interview on our podcast. And here we are, finally. And I, I'm, I'm grateful to have such a unique and kind and talented friend. And no doubt the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, and I'm, I also know your, your daughters. Um, I'm friendly with Sivia and Sarah. And there's this, there's this theme amongst your daughters. I met Masha also. Um, there's, it's the two things that I admire most, a good heart and a generous spirit. And all your daughters have that. So I have no doubt that those things that I admire come from you. And um, I'd love for you to share with me and our listeners about your children and about where you are today and what you do. Just a little synopsis. Thank you, Hushka. So my husband and I are married for almost 50 years, 49 years now. And we have Kinanahara, four beautiful daughters, Asha, Sarah, Tsevia, and Ida. Ida is the youngest. And uh, we live in Montreal for the last 50 years. Before that, I lived in Rostov, Russia. And uh, actually, I was born in Siberia, but then uh, as a child, I moved, as a toddler, I moved to Rostov and lived most of our life in Russia in Rostov and then <clears throat> moved to Canada. And that's already Montreal for the last 50 years. And uh, so we got married in uh, Montreal and brought up our four beautiful daughters. And we have Kinanhora, many grandchildren, six of them married, and uh, three of my daughters are grandmothers. So I have great-grandchildren, Kinanhora, which brings us tremendous nachas. We should continue to only have nachas. Yeah. And what we do is, you know, when we got married, the rabbi told my husband he should do shluchas in Montreal for the Russian Jews. And at that time, there were very few, and the community grew Kinanhara, and now we have thousands and thousands of uh, Russian Jews and uh, their descendants, and uh, that's what we do. We also had jobs elsewhere, but now we're sort of doing it uh, full-time. So you had jobs and you were on shluchas at the same time? Right. It was our decision that we would like to work to earn a salary so we don't have to fundraise so much that we could do all what we do just because we love doing it and not because we needed to put the bread on the table. That was the jobs. And then my husband uh, did all his shluchas work. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, well, now I know where, you know, Ida's brand name is Multi-Role Woman. Now I know where the multi-role comes from. Business, shluchas, parenting. Mm -hmm. All in one. <laughs> it's like it's like a bunch, a few full time jobs. Um, okay, so Ma, I wanted to go back a little bit. Growing up, we heard many stories about grandparents on both sides, but Ma, specifically your father, you had a close relationship with him. I think that it, it would be great for our listeners to hear about Zadie Tzvi's story. So yeah, my father, Vashalom, uh, he was a host of the Freer Dikere, but he actually met the Freer Dikere, but the previous. Uh, Lebavitch Rebbe, Yesofitzach Schneerson, uh, he met him in person in 1925. He came, <clears throat> he was a young boy, he was an orphan, his, his mother passed away, so he went to study in the yeshiva in Leningrad, where the Friedrich Rebbe was at that time. Can I and just tell you that my grandmother's from Leningrad, so we have a connection. Oh, Asya knew, Asya yes. she knew, actually, she, she, uh, she was related to Lazer, La uh, Lazer Lazarev, 
Yeah. I think she told me, and he was my father's best friend. So oh wow. She had she spoke such beautiful Russian. And then she when she told me that I think she was a sister of Laser Lazarev or something uh, like really close connection. And I told her that was my father's uh, my father's best friend who is in the same circle. Wow. I met Asya. I heard her beautiful songs. It was such an inspiration, your grandmother. Yes. Yes. Well, see, so we have we have connection from. Yeah. Okay. so. Sorry to interrupt. So uh, then the Soviet authorities uh, closed all the yeshivas. It was outlawed. And the Friedrich Rebbe already left Leningrad, but he still was very much on top of what was happening. There was other people who were continuing with the Rebbe's work. There was this person, Honya Morozov, who was my father's mashpia, who was in charge of that group, Teferetz Bakhurin that people, they had to work uh, during the day to, you know, to survive. But after work, they would get together in people's houses and they would learn Torah and Hasidus. The Rebbe was very much involved in what they did and what they learned and their their personal life. Like he blessed my father when he got married to this uh, lady from Hasidic family, Libavich Hasidim, Mira Lokshin. And two months after he got married, the whole group was arrested, including my father and Honya Morozov and a few other were executed. And my father was sent to uh, far north, Komi SSR, for 10 years in a labor camp, which was uh, the toughest imprisonment and horrible conditions where he spent the 10 years. In the meantime, the war broke out and he, uh, his wife... What year was this? So that was 1938. Okay. In 1941, the war started in right. the Soviet Union. It right. came to Mira Lokshin was his first wife. Uh-huh. So he didn't know that she was pregnant when he was arrested. So he found out being in jail that uh, that she had a baby girl, Rivka, and uh, he only saw her pictures. But during the war, unfortunately, his wife, his child, his father... His uh, brother, his sisters, everybody perished in the Holocaust, except one sister, Celia, at that time her name was Schmuckler, with her two sons, Zalman and Ephraim Schmuckler. Uh, they were little little kids. Ephraim was six months old and Zalman was a year and a half. Wow. And she was alone with two children and she uh, left Leningrad to go to Georgia. The Nazis didn't come that far. So a lot of Lubavitch Hasidim survived because they evacuated to Georgia. And after the war, my father found out that everybody was killed except this one sister. And she wrote to him after the war, she was able to write that she has an opportunity to live with her children. And she said she felt bad leaving him behind because he was the only person that was left in her family. And he said, you get out. He wrote to her get out of this country, just run. Don't even look back. I will survive. Don't worry. Wow. So ironically, he survived being in jail. So he wanted to go to war because he wanted to die as a hero and not caged animal. But at the end, Baruch Hashem, like he survived. Because the Nazis never made it to the prisons. No, yeah, because it was so far. So they never made it to the prisons. Wow. So uh, So she left. And he came out and he went to Georgia because she wrote to him that 
his friend Laser Nanas. He was in jail at that time, but his wife, who was my grandmother's sister, lived in Georgia, and she helped him, and she made a shidduch between him and her niece, my mother, who was never married. So they got married, and my uh, brother was born, and six months after he was born in Georgia, they arrested him again, and they said that you're continuing your contra-revolutionary activities, and they sentenced him to permanent exile in Siberia. So he had to go to Siberia, but this time it was not jail. It was a, it was not labor camp. It was exile. So my mother, who was free, didn't have to go, but she really wanted to be with her husband. And she took her child, the six-month-old child, and she followed him to Siberia. So, and they lived there, and that's where I was born. So wow. when I was born on Youth Base Tamos, just a few months before that, Stalin died. And my father said, this is a sign. Stalin died, and you were born on Youth Base Tamos. We too will be free. Wow. Youth Base Tamos is the, is the famous day that the Friedrich Rebbe was freed from jail. So this was a special, special right. day. So I just was, got the I just got the shivers about this about yeah. this moment of you and being he was, born. He was also <laughs> born on that day. And then he was also released from jail on that day. So and wow. the Rebbe and my was my father's uh Rebbe. Like he was at that time he met him personally. He saw that was uh, it was his prophecy and sure enough in a few months, we got the news that we will be free from the exile. It took over a year, but then we were free to go out of Siberia, except we weren't able to live wherever we want to live. We had to live where we had relatives. And my grandmother and my uncle lived in Rostov, so we came to Rostov. The Jewish community in Rostov, before the war, was there was Rebbe Rashab was there. So it was a very vibrant Jewish community in the 20s. I mean, from Lubavitch community. But after the war, there was hardly anything left because they were killed or they there was no visible from community there. But we had no choice. We had to go to Rostov. Because How old were you? How old were you then? I was... Two and a half or something, two years old. Wow. Uh, yeah. do you, do you so have, I don't remember Siberia. Yeah. It's I was only, ask I have, uh, you know, I remember by by my father's, my parents' uh, stories, stories, but I don't. I remember Rostov when I was four. But uh, that's where I grew up, like from uh, like three or four until I was 18 and we left. Everything you're sharing makes me just think of the word Mesirat Nefesh, self sacrifice. You and your and your parents and your grandparents were faced with real self-sacrifice that we as a nation or as a people don't really get faced with that kind of um, those kinds of situations today. In a letter that I just learned with Rabbi Shays Taub, the Rebbe was saying that even though we don't have that same, we're not faced with the same self-sacrifice as you were, we have that within us. We have that strength within us and that um, faith within us the same way you do, just to know that we have it within us if we are ever faced with our own personal challenges. Also, I feel like in every generation, there is a challenge that we have to overcome. Maybe yeah. we don't have the same challenges as you know my grandfather or my mother. He also said it because life can be, you know, because we're not faced with it, it's hard sometimes to stay on the right path because there are so many other, like when you're faced with it, it keeps you strong, it keeps you centered. 
And when you're not faced with it, it's easy to drift off. So it's also a reminder that you have it within you. You Okay. So you were born in Siberia. And then when you were a toddler, you moved to Rostov. There are no Jews there. You go to this new place. You're not scared for your life, really, but still it's the Soviet era. And I'm sure that there were challenges. So could you talk about growing up, um, like life in the former Soviet Union? What was it like for a Jew? And what challenges did people face behind the Iron Curtain? And like, did you experience those challenges? Well, Soviet Union is a very, very big country. It actually had 50, now it's 15 different countries. And the life in one part was not the same as in the other part. So in Rostov, tell you the truth, I did not. The only room people that I knew, like observant, was my father and my uncle. And he was walking uh, two hours to shul, and he was the Balkoira. He read the Torah. He was davening. He did all the services for uh, hardly 10 old people. And there was no uh, no kosher food. So we had Shoichet coming in twice a year before Rosh Hashanah and before Pesach. And that's when we ate chicken. But really, we didn't miss it because, well, so we ate fish. I did not feel deprived by eating fish. I loved fried potatoes. That was my favorite. I loved bread and butter. I was not hungry. I had what I needed. And uh, you could be a you could be a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> my father really tried to educate us and to give us the most that he can in Yiddishkeit by himself. But it was difficult because, first of all, even my mother comes from the front family, but she was so scared. She said, oh, you want you want them to go and tell and then we will be arrested again. We'll be we didn't 15 years in jail isn't enough for you. She was scared that we will go and report. We were taught from great like little kindergarten that there is in school in public school that there is no god that op- the religion is opium of the masses and my father was the only force of judaism that to contradict that because you're brainwashed every day to report uh, if your grandmother goes to shul or to even to church you know the, for the not jewish people like religion was not was something that was not officially forbidden but you had to report because the, even so it's con- in constitution it wasn't forbidden but so, so she was afraid that you would report. Yeah, your, your tell father. that we're religious, right. and then they what if they? Because you were a kid. They, you were a kid, yeah. right? I didn't know. So anyway, so my father was the only force that was that was trying to teach us Yiddishkeit in wow. a very secular, anti-religious society. So it was very difficult situation. But I had my friends, and I didn't. Um, suffer so much from it. Just curious to know how you felt about that. Like he was really a trailblazer going against what everybody else was doing. Everybody else was telling me one thing and my father was telling me another. How did you feel about that at that time? I loved my father so much. I believed him, but I thought, oh, well, I I didn't know what to believe. When you're (laughs) brainwashed and then he tells me one thing, he said, there's a sham and this. I did listen to him, but it was... It was uh, difficult, you know, because you have all those anti-religious forces uh, brainwashing. But you know what? Ultimately, he, he it did have an effect on you because you took yeah. on what, what he shared with you. Right. You were still scared. Like, you were still scared. I was scared because, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have, I did not advertise that I was Jewish. I had a, I don't look particularly Jewish. I had a Russian last name. Right. And nobody even knew until they heard my father talk and my father talked with heavy Yiddish accent or my brother's name was David. So I said, what kind of name is that? You, you were saying that you listened to your father 
because you loved him so much. Not necessarily did you at the time, well, you weren't sure if what he was saying was right or what you were learning in school was right, but, but you listened to him. And I think that's, that's a lesson for us as parents. Like it's a, it's a tough world out there today with all the modern technology and, um, you know, it's a challenging world for us as parents and even it's challenging for our children, but if we really stick true to what we believe in and if our children feel love from us, like acceptance for who we are, even though they might not necessarily be internalizing what we're saying, they're listening if if they feel the love from us. I, I, I just kind of took that lesson from you saying, you know, you loved your father. You didn't weren't necessarily internalizing what he was saying, but you listened to him because he loved you. Well, I believe that he would never tell me lies. He tells me the truth, what he believed in. And I believe that so he was such a special person. He was so kind. And the goyim who he worked with said, oh, if, if all the Jews were like you, we would have liked the Jews. He loved us so much and we loved him so much that everything he said, I believe. But then the teacher said something else. So I told him the teacher said this and this and this. So what did he say when you said that? He said they have to say that's what they get paid for. <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't necessarily believe in what they say because otherwise right. they wouldn't have a job. So mm-hmm. it's not only love, it's trust. You said you trusted yeah, him. I trusted him fully. Yeah. So yeah. And I guess, and you said because you saw how kind he was to others. And, yeah. you know, these these are all lessons for us, for, for us today, even though we're living a completely different life. Can, can you share with us today? Actually, there are so many people moving around the world since COVID and um, it's a challenge to move and come to a new place. What was it like, even though this is also a different time, but we can learn from you, we want to hear what was it like for you leaving your life behind? What was the hardest part? And, you know, what what was it like for you coming to a new country? Like, even though you had a very difficult life, was it hard to leave it behind? Because sometimes we can be in an unhealthy environment or toxic situation, but somehow it's still hard to leave it. The thing is, our aunt who found us, uh, I'll tell the story later, but she sent us parcels to help us survive. And that helped our material life. And we didn't suffer so much materially. And uh, so uh, I had good friends and I felt bad leaving friends. So I wasn't even uh, so excited to leave because, you know, you get used to it. You have your friends, you you have everything you, you need. What else? Like, you know, and my father kept saying, no, you will thank me. You, we have to leave this country. You cannot stay here. we just because he said that when we, I'll tell the story after, but when we got the refusal the, the third time, I was the one to tell him, send the telegram to my aunt, send the telegram. And that really made a difference. Even so, I didn't want to leave, but I told him, and that telegram made such a difference. What made yeah. you What made so you the whole do story, that? what happened? This is the story of our exit. That's an amazing story because it has everything to do with the Rebbe. So... You know, my father was a free Erdike Rabbi Hossid, and they knew there was another rabbi, but it was his uh, only surviving sister who left Russia. So she was traveling. The name was Celia Schmuckler with the two little kids. She traveled together with Rebbe Tzanchana, the rabbi's mother. My aunt became very close to her. They were traveling together, and my aunt took care of her. She had eczema she gave. She got her some cream and she really gave her the bed, her bed, and she put her children on the the floor. She was like really, really instrumental of making sure that Rebetz and Hannah had the best care that was able to provide in those displaced persons camp in horrible conditions when they 
traveled out of of Russia. First, they went to France and Denmark, and they they travel all over. And uh, she was with her. She was close to her, very close to her, and she called her Tochter. And uh, when they came to America, my my aunt was settled in uh, Montreal in Canada, and Rabbi Sanchana came to her son, the Rebbe, in uh, Crown Heights. So during this time, she married this Rabbi Chaikin, who was also traveling with them. He actually, his wife passed away at childbirth, and uh, Rabbi <coughs> Bell Chaikin from Cleveland was a baby. So she actually brought him up. He doesn't know another mother. That's his mother. She's uh, So she brought up four of Rabbi Chaikin's children and two of her own children, and uh, they were bringing it up together. And at that time, she found that my father was alive, that her brother survived, and that he has another family, and he lives in Rostov. She found out, and she started helping us right away, writing letters, sending parcels, even so they had their own financial difficulties sometimes. And after Rabbi Haikin passed away, she's still continuing. Even so, she was financially struggling alone with, with her children, but she kept sending us parcels, which made such a big difference for us yeah. in every way, like helping us survive. And the whole, her mission in life became to bring us and to reunite our families. So she went to the Rebbe, she went to Kron Heights, and the, and Rebbe Tzinchana, the Rebbe's mother, told her to come at six o'clock to her house. And people said, what do you dare to go six o'clock? This is the Rebbe comes to his mother at six o'clock. She said, well, the Rebbe Tzinchana told me to come six o'clock. So she would come at six o'clock, and the Rebbe came, and Rebbe Tzinchana told uh the Rebbe, that this this lady, Tzila, she helped me so much. I don't know how I would have made it here without her. She was so close to me. And uh, since then, and the Rebbe was nice to all the Jews, but he gave special attention to Tzila and uh, to her children. And he said, and she said, my goal in life is to bring my brother and his family. That's all I want. I have nobody. Everybody was killed except my brother. And he has a family and I want to bring him. And the Rebbe guided her every step of the way, how to bring us out. So first we tried. Wow. She wrote us letter. Uh, the grandfather said, she couldn't say the Rebbe said. Uh, so my father knew that grandfather meant, meant. Why couldn't she say the Rebbe? Because of the letters were all. Red? Uh, all red. Oh. Everything was, everything was, uh, the, every letter that came from outside was red. Wow. So she couldn't say the rabbi because she was afraid. So in 1967, we applied to Israel, but we were refused. And uh, well, our visa was, exit visa was refused. And we became refusing, which was very persecuted. My brother was like, they wanted to expel him from university. They were like really harassing us. Terribly, because we so, wanted to leave to Israel. So for people who don't know what a refusenik is, because that's a very like well-known term amongst Russians. So what is a refusenik? It's uh, people who uh, who applied to go to Israel, and Israel was very much... Uh, uh, Just Israel or anywhere? No, no, especially Israel. Okay. Maybe especially Israel, because Israel was uh, the aggressor state. They're, they were calling the Israeli aggressors. We cannot let our Soviet citizens be cannon flesh in Israel. We can't right, let you go. Right. So they refused. And then in 69, we applied again, again was refused. And the Rebbe said, let's try Canada. He told Ephraim and Zal- Zalman and Ephraim, uh, her sons and Silla, 
to first they applied for a Canadian immigration through the Lebovich community in Montreal, through the member of parliament, they got us uh, sponsored immigrant status. So Canada accepted us as, as sponsored immigrants. But then the rebbe told her, you have to, the exit visa was the problem, not the entry visa already, because we had it. And we said, what should we do? And the rebbe said, you have to go through the higher channels. As Megid Gateman to the Hexta, he told my uh, cousins, Schmucklers and Zilla, you go, you go to the top. You have to go to the top, to the highest. They left no stone unturned. Schmucklers and Zilla, they did everything possible to get to the prime minister through the member of parliament straight to Prime Minister Trudeau, who is the father of the current Canadian Prime Minister. So he knew, uh, his secretary, his administrative assistant, Mary MacDonald, she knew about our case and she promised to help. When we applied again, the same officers again refused. And at that time, the first time in history, the Soviet President Kasigin came to Canada with an official visit. He was um, meeting Trudeau about there's some grain deal or something. This is the first time in history. And that time we were refused. So even so, I didn't really want to leave so much, but I told my father, send a telegram. He Kasigin is still there. Send a telegram. So he sent a telegram. Our visa was refused. So Celia took the telegram and she ran to Ottawa and she gave this telegram to the journalist who asked Kasigin, how come you're not letting Russian Jews out? And Kasigin answered, oh, no, only people with the state secrets we don't let out. And then he showed the telegram. Those people are simple. They do not know any state secret. And they were refused. So Kasigin personally took the telegram. Trudeau also spoke to him about our family. So two weeks after Kasigin came back, the same officer that refused us three times called my father and he said, look, in 50 years of my work here as an Avir officer, nobody ever overturned my decision. I don't know where you have connection in such high places. I don't understand it. I cannot understand it, but you're free to go. Get out. Get Amazing. Out. He was Amazing. pissed. He, he, was, he not, was probably on an ego trip. Like, he I'm said the he one could not to. believe that came from Moscow, that his decision was overturned. Amazing. This is like crazy. Hello. Hello, Ida. You know, we just interviewed Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, and he was sharing this concept of moral imagination, that we can take stories, stories of morals from other people's lives and apply it in our own life. And I think this story shows never to give up and how one little action can change your destiny. Like you, oh, it's he's never going to say yes. He's never said yes in 50 years, but you telling your father to send the telegram and then your relative in, the, in America going and bringing it back and saying, no, we have to let them in. Those few little acts changed the whole destiny. And just, mm -hmm. I think it's a lesson to never give up. Don't, don't, just because things have been going a certain way doesn't mean it can't change when there's a will, there's a way. Right. And also, like the Rebbe told my aunt, because she was widowed twice, so she didn't want to get married. And there was a shit that came up, this amazing person, who Rabbi Ushpol, and he was a widower. And somebody made a shidduch order. The Rebbe really wanted her to to uh, that shidduch. And Tzila said, no, but I want my brother to come. He Rebbe told her, I can assure you, 
you get married to Rabbi Ushpo, your brother, you like him, you want to marry him, your brother will come. He gave her an assurance. Just before his, their hoopah, the hoopah was in their uh, Shmukler's house, in their children's house. The rabbi who came uh, from Montreal, Rabbi Heckman, came to Montreal. And my father went, wanted to tell him that we have the permission. He knew he came, so he traveled to Moscow to tell Rabbi Heckman from Montreal that we have the permission to leave, to tell it to my aunt. So he comes back to Montreal. He comes and he said, I want to see her. It was uh, an hour before the hoopah. They said, you can't see her. She has a hoopah in an hour. Mm -hmm. He said, I have to tell her something that will make her day. So they let him see. She comes out just an hour before the hoopah and he tells her, your brother got the permission to leave. Can you imagine? This? Wow. Was, yeah. And the, the rabbi really knew. I mean, he knew. He did. And then when we came to Canada, and we went to thank the Rebbe. We went to tell the Rebbe how much, and we had this yehidas with the Rebbe. This was the most amazing experience. I would never forget Rebbe's eyes and the way we were, like, you know, we came and how he spoke to us. And and the Rebbe, and so our uncle, my mother's... I'm actually, I'm actually getting emotional. So special. <laughs> yeah, I, mother, Ina, I didn't realize, I didn't realize what a connection you have. Like, the Rebbe brought you here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He brought you to yeah. where you are. And, and we tell him that our uncle who, uh, you know, so our uncle, uh, my mother's brother, he wanted to live to Israel. He was a from Jew, the only from Jew uh, remaining there. And he, he wanted to go to Israel. And uh, and he came to Avir, to the same officer, and he says, oh, your name is Krongaus? You can go. You have, you, are you a brother of this lady like that? They just got the permission. Okay, I'm giving you, and he gave him the permission to leave, even so he, he would never, but he thought that, oh, that we have the same connection. He was the, you know, Mrs. He was, scared. he was scared that he's connected because it's a brother-in-law of my father, right? So he gave the permission, but they introduced this new law that university graduate had to pay an enormous amount of money, which they didn't have, and they couldn't leave because they didn't have the money. So the Rebbe, so we tell that to the Rebbe that, our uncle has the permission to leave, but he just doesn't have the money. He doesn't know what to do. And he, they were both expelled. They were both fired from their jobs. They had professional jobs. They have no money to leave. We can't even help them. And the Rebbe says like this, they will come and make like this. He brushed it off. He said, don't worry. They'll come with lesser miracles than you. And that day, when, when he said that, the same day, a total stranger knocked on my uncle's door and said, I heard you have a visa to go to Israel. I want to go to Israel too, and I have a lot of money here. I don't know what, and we can't, we could take only 400 rubles out of Russia. I trust that you're honest people. The man doesn't know my uncle. He says, I'm going to give you all the money, and when you come back to Israel, you'll pay me back. And he gave him the money. They came to Israel. They bought, my aunt's still living in Jerusalem, and they paid back everything from 10 years to the penny to the man. Can you wow, imagine? No. The rabbi just knew that. He just knew that to say that. This is wow. bracha. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for sharing this. It's so emotional and beautiful and so special. You have such a, a merit, a schus, that you, the rabbi was the one that brought you here. That's like a, a lifetime bracha for where you live yeah. and for your whole family. So when you said you came and you straight away came and thanked the rabbi, which is 
which is one of your first, probably one of your first experiences coming to America. Is that what you first did? Yeah, the first one. We actually had a difficult time getting a visa because uh, they asked me, uh, the uh, American consulate, were you a member of Komsomol? Komsomol is a youth party, communist youth party. I said, not because I want to, because you can't get to the university without it. So they were reluctant to give us the visa because, like, you know, you were coming. And then Trudeau himself asked, uh, I mean, Trudeau's secretary, Trudeau's uh, assistant, called the American consulate, and they got us the visa right away. <laughs> so we had the connection with the prime minister even after that to come to, to the States. Nice. Yeah. What did it feel like for you coming to a new country? Well, the, it was difficult because of the language. The language is really, I speak fluently five languages, but I didn't speak English and French then. Coming and not knowing the language was the most difficult. When we went to thank Trudeau, my mother was the only one who was able to speak French to, to Trudeau. We were standing there, we didn't know. So not knowing the language. Also, even so my father was from, I was not keeping everything, like, you know, coming here. We came to Thailand, and from day one, we started, like, keeping everything all, and I had to learn a lot. Even so, I was convinced that this was the right way. I had to, you know, I did not go to Jewish schools. I was lacking my Jewish education, and and uh, I had to learn everything slowly, like a, like a real Balchuva, you know. So it was not so easy, you know, you just you do this and I, why are you, why do you do that? Why do you cover your hair? Why do you do this? You know, all those questions came up. My father was amazing and uh, schmucklers and um, were amazing in answering those questions. So I really believe it wasn't forced on me. It, I did it willingly, but I nevertheless had to learn a lot. You know, it was not easy. So it's uh, so that was in 1972. Right. So, so I think and then- I just want to say, I think that's a great lesson, too, in that you're saying that it wasn't easy, but you wanted to do it like you chose to do yeah. it. Life, right. life wasn't meant to be easy. I'm saying that it's something mm-hmm. for us to know that not necessarily is it easy to learn something new or, or to take on things in religion. Not necessarily, there's a difference between something being easy, but something feeling like it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's true. Because um, look at look at you today. You've brought up a whole family, a religious family who are inspired. And you speak such a beautiful English. Mm-hmm. You hear that? Yeah. <laughs> she never lost her accent, but she's very articulate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the juicy part. No, okay. We want to get to the juicy part. <laughs> so... Um, you came in 1972, and within a year, you were already married. You got married how long after you came? Uh, 11, like less than a year. You were 19. Less than a year, exactly less than 11 months. So tell us about how you met Ta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when uh, so when I came here, I was learning uh, like Yiddishkeit, but I still wanted, because I was in university the second year, and uh and I wanted to continue because, you know, we were educated people. My mother was educated. She wanted uh, me to continue. I wanted to continue. And the schmucklers, they wrote to the rabbi, and the rabbi did not give me a bracha to continue. We, I should not continue. So Start, I, You mean not, not continue studying? Not continue studying. This is why we're interviewing you now, because we touched upon this in the episode with uh, Joseph Telushkin just before this is our previous right. episode, where the rabbi told you no to studying, and then later he's told you yes. and 
then we decided that's it we're interviewing you the (laughs) follow-up so they think I said so what should I do I'm out of high school they tried to put me in like I went to listen to Pesrivka I'm already over the age what am I going to do they said I think you should get married Uh, I said who I can't even speak English I spoke broken Yiddish like you know like I spoke German to them and Yiddish they spoke Yiddish to me so we sort of communicated I said how could I get married they said there's plenty of Russian uh, speaking uh, from boy like boys in, in New York oh I said okay so when I went to New York uh, I guess uh, Zaman Ephraim approached uh, somebody and asked one of their, actually Ephraim's brother-in-law, Goldschmidt, who was the my husband's um, sister's nephew. So he they introduced us. And the story with my husband is my, wow. my husband's sister is Clara Goldschmidt. So her husband's brother was the Rebbe Schavrusa, years before. So this was a strong Lubavitch family. They came in 1969 and then other siblings follow. My my husband was the only unmarried one. And so when he came with his parents, the Rebbe sent them a ticket, not only them, other Lubavitch Hasidim as well, to come to see the Rebbe. So when they came to see the Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe asked, so who is their Tish? You know, where is the table that he heard about the Rachnosos Orkim and he heard about what Mordechai Sirota did. And then the rabbi had a Yehidas with my husband and he told him, you have to stay in New York and learn in Yeshiva for a Russian, for the Bochum. And he didn't, he wasn't happy, but the rabbi said, so he stayed. Everybody left. He says, what about Kibbut Davaim? I want to go with my parents back to Israel. My family is in Israel. And is that, said, is no. that where all your family is, Ida? All your, your father's my family? My father's family, my, yeah. My husband's family is all in Israel, and he wanted to go back. He didn't have anybody in New York that related to him. And the Rebbe said, no, you have to stay. And then on Pesach, he really didn't want to be in New York. He went to the Rebbe and said, I want to go back to Israel. And the Rebbe said, no, you have to stay. And he kept going, and the Rebbe was saying, no, no, no. And he was not happy, but he listened to what the Rebbe said. And then on Simchas Taira, we came to see the Rebbe, and that's where we were introduced. And then he didn't even have a time to propose. He just, we liked each other. We both liked each other. And he went to see the Rebbe, and he said that I met Anna Zobin, all Hanna Zobin. And the Rebbe started giving him brochas as if we were engaged. Like, you know, oh, wow. So when he came back to me, he says, you know, the Rebbe really like, you know, was acting as if is as if I proposed. I don't even know if you want to marry. I said, yeah, yeah, I do want to marry. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> how how many times did you see each other? Oh, three times. Three times. <laughs> but then there was another thing. He so he had to come before that happened. He had to come to Montreal and and I was waiting for him to come and he didn't come. So I was really upset. Like, that's why I really understood that I I, I am waiting for him. So and I was like crying. I'm so upset. That but he, he was coming come. to Montreal to date you. To date me. Right. That was before the rebels gave a broker. Oh, that right. was the third date, actually. Okay. You know, third or fourth date. Yes. He was coming to Montreal, but he didn't show up. So oh. the Zalman Schmuckler said, don't worry, you'll find somebody else. Okay, change his mind. He really probably didn't like you that much. So he changed his mind. And I was devastated. I really, oh that's why I understood how much I liked him. How devastated I was that he didn't come. It turned out he thought that he could come with the Israeli passport, with Hyman's bus, comes to the border. 
They don't let him in. They said, where's your Canadian visa? And he doesn't even speak English. And the only person in the bus was Peretz Mochkin. He didn't speak any English. And he tried to translate <laughs> in Yiddish. Anyway, they sent him back. And when he came back, he called. There were no me. cell phones there. So no <laughs> right. I didn't know that he he didn't stood me. I thought he stood me up and he didn't like me. <laughs> but it wasn't the case. He was just not let in. So then I went to New York again. And then then that's what happened with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe gave a brocha and we got engaged right away. So really, we saw each other three or four times, not more. Wow, so, so yeah. powerful. Not only did the Rebbe guide you and give you brachas to move here, but also your marriage has such a beautiful yeah. bracha, beautiful yeah. foundation. He him, yeah, he gave him a brocha before he had a chance to propose. Wow, that wow. Yeah. But you know, um, I Ida sometimes sends me these romantic pictures of you and your husband. Even before, <laughs> even right before I interview now, having a romantic breakfast. And <laughs> I ju- I just always hear about how how special your relationship is and how much respect you have for each other and how much your children respect both of you. And I, I thought you'd be the perfect person to give us some marriage tips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, day one we were we have we do have a beautiful marriage and I learned a lot from him I was in our house my mother was very temperamental and she would scream and yell like you know in a good way there was it just and sometimes I was like too emotional and get too excited and he calmed me down and he's the kind of person who's like very uh, level together we are like so complement each other so i like you know became a little bit less uh, excited like but we were like you every, balance each other out yeah and every single decision that we make every single decision we make together whatever we decide to do and he's always very respectful to what i think and I said, look, I feel very strongly about this. And then he would listen to me and try to do it. And if I know he feels something strong, I would do what he says, even so I'm not convinced. And you do the, the same. We never had like a like a fight where we wouldn't find a solution. We would always find a solution with bringing up the kids. We had maybe some disagreement, but then we have a lot of mutual respect. And we are even, we're not on the same page always. But we find uh, a common ground. That's uh, how do you find that common ground? Uh, like- sort of, I play his why he thinks that way, and he plays why I think that way, and we try to, you know, we don't always agree, but sometimes we agree to disagree, and sometimes we just find what is the solution here. Um, we in a in an episode that we did on marriage, I think we so I was saying that fifty nine percent of arguments that couples have are not resolvable, meaning like you will not see eye to eye. And the way to move forward is to recognize that and to find like a a happy medium. Yeah. Like a happy medium. Or how do you move forward knowing that you don't see the world in the same way? Right. I think, I think my, I think that's also. Yeah. But we do. The thing is the most like 80% or 90% we do see the world in the same way we do. Like it's a lot of, we have a lot of. You have the same, you have the same values. We are very, we're both very non-confrontational. My father, my husband is the, the king of the peacemaker. He doesn't have enemies. He likes to be. Like he would find a way not to. He's, he's really, like Aaron. 
He's yeah, like, he would never Shalom. ever like somebody is not so nice. He'll find good in him. He'll he will not confront. We do not. We both do not like confrontation. We do not. We like peace in the family. We like peace in the community. We really so that way we're very very similar. So a lot of goals we have the same. I the call the religious call. level. Even so, I didn't oh. grow up the way he grew up. In a very religious uh, community, we found our common ground in in religion as well. So the core values are there. Then, with yeah. that's why you're able to come to a compromise or a decision. Right. It's not necessarily a compromise. It's just like this meeting place. But I guess it's because, like, if someone's looking out for dating, one of the things to look out for is that you share core values. Would you yeah, say the truth is it was pure luck because <laughs> I did not know him at all in this period. right. That's I the just bottom liked line. Him a lot, but I did not know a lot of the things. It was just right. It was a shame. You know, it's funny. So I, I could not have known anything in those three dates. Tell you the so, truth. You know, you have people who date three times and have a wonderful relationship, and you have people you know who date for six or seven years and then they're divorced two years after they get married. In both scenarios, you have stories of people where it ended well and where it didn't. And I think the bottom line is that a commitment and dedication to making things work and also, of course, having shared values helps a lot. Those things are, I think, significantly more important and a better predictor of a, of a happy marriage. Sometimes you can have someone who dates five or six years and then they feel like they didn't know they don't know the person once they get married. And then sometimes you'll have someone that dates like your mom did three or four times and feels like, oh, I, Hashem blessed me. I got really lucky, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they had the Rebbe's bracha too, which was yes. a big, big factor. Yeah, big factor. Yeah. I also, I also like you, we have something in common. I didn't date three times, but I dated four times and I, I wasn't 19, I was 18. But my my, I feel like my subconscious made the right decision and Hashem blessed me because I married a very good man. I think that's also when you marry a mensch or you marry um, someone with good values, it helps that um, it helps to get through things, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I used to, I used to tell my girls date for a long, 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 long time, but then you see, you see in life, there are people that date for a long time that don't end up having a, the, a relationship like you do, who, who dated for three, who dated three times. So like you say, Hashem bless you. It's muscle. A lot of it is muscle. And it takes work. Look, you see. But I did feel like when I was so devastated when he didn't come, that's why I felt like he's really in my heart. Wow. (laughs) That's so romantic. (laughs) So not everybody has that when they're dating for three times. I mean, that's something special. But um, what I want to say is that it's not like you're saying, oh, we agree on everything. You've gone through times where you had to work through that you didn't agree, but you came to yeah. a decision. It's not like well, you're saying still, it. We still do. There's still not, we don't see eye to eye to everything, but we find a common ground and we have mutual respect right, to the respect. Other person uh, point of view. Yeah. Well, you sound like you have something very special and it's special to be able to hear that kind of relationship today. I want to speak to you about mother-daughter relationship. I also, I have my three oldest are girls and I wanted to ask you what it was like for you to bringing up your four girls. Well, I mean, this is my experience that mother-daughter relationships are extraordinary. They're so precious, beautiful, and such a gift. Um, And at the same time, they can be complicated like everything in life. Everything that's good comes with its challenge. Um, I think because we're so similar, the mothers and daughters, and because we're emotional, uh, it comes with its, its challenges. And you have a special relationship with your daughters. 
And but I'm sure sometimes it can be challenging. Yet at the end of the day, Ida always speaks so highly of you to the extent that she's like, I want to interview my mother. And so I want you to share your approach with your relationship to your daughters. So growing up, it was uh, like usual, you know, challenging, uh, you know, bringing up teenagers that have many challenges. Especially me. (laughs) A lot of challenges and uh, it's normal. But at the end of the day, once they grew up, we could not, my husband and I could not have imagined the better daughters, the better people. They have all of our girls. They have, they are kind. They have such chesed. They have such yirashamayim. They they are beautiful inside and out. And they help what they care about people. They're wonderful. You know, they have beautiful families. They love uh, they are so nice to us. They're so nice to, like, you know, good mothers. I could not dream, we could not dream of better children and better relationships that we have now. It's impossible. I mean, it's just Keep like, we love our daughters and we're so proud. They bring us so much nachas. So I tell them when they have challenges, uh, when their children act up or whatever, I said, well, despite all that, if if they turn out as well as you do, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Couldn't like you know the challenges are normal. You do go. Th- every parent goes through challenges when the children grow up, but it's the end result that counts. So I could not have uh, dreamed of a better, better children and better uh, people. Like for everybody, not just for us, for other people, for the mothers. It's a tremendous nachas to see our children turn out the way they did. I said we did something right. Yes, that's why I'm asking you. (laughs) Well, it's not only, we were not the only ones to credit for that. There were a lot of other things that, uh, but Baruch Hashem, really Baruch Hashem for our children. Could not find them better. The bottom line is when we go through our challenges with our relationships with, if when we do with our daughters to know, it's all all worth it in the end because, because um, our daughters are special. (laughs) and and I think also it's your it's your attitude it's your attitude and what you gave to your daughters and um you for who you are like who you are as a person you you work through your challenges you're a strong woman you also give your love I guess you learned that from your parents from your father who gave you love and and you respected him and um and you trusted him and ultimately your girls feel the same way about you and even through challenges that's what shines through at the end Hearing that is so special, especially considering that, I mean, I've heard this before, you know, Ma, you're always like very open about how you feel about us. Um, But I know I wasn't an easy kid and teenager. Um, You know, I caused a lot of problems and hopefully I'm making up for them now, but I have big shoes to fill. And I think that throughout the challenges that I had as a teenager, um, I feel like you taught me how to be a good mother through those challenges where now I feel like I'm so equipped to be there for my family and for my kids. And um, I think I'm enjoying motherhood because of you, because of that. And I love you for that. And well, I love you period. And thank you. I have to like snap back into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, I mean, Edie, you just said, I love you. And it's something that I wanted to ask you about love when you were talking, you were talking about your husband and you said you had that like butterfly feeling you knew in the third date that, um, that you had this feeling for him. So 
would you have said that that was love? And what would you say the differences between that love and the love that you have now? That was, uh, you know, it couldn't be the same, but actually my love for him grew uh, stronger and stronger. I mean, really, I don't think it was love. It was, I really liked him. I was infatuation. It was, uh, you know, really, but I can, it's, the love goes stronger with years and hours definitely did. Definitely through the ups and downs, through difficulties, and we had many challenges, many challenges in our lives, but it only grew stronger. He is my true partner, and he's not true love. <laughs> like, what are some key tools that, um, you know, we can help, we or our listeners can help, can use to apply in our lives to help us pull through when we're going through something difficult? Imunan betochan and love Hashem, Yerushamayim is what we could do. Everything else is in his hand. Everything is, I feel everything is for the best. There is a reason. Hashem has a bigger plan. We don't always see it. We do not always understand it. Sometimes it, it seems like unfair. Hashem has bigger plans. We don't see it. We don't understand. But it, there is a reason for it. All you have to do is pray and daven to Hashem and ask. And that's the only thing we can do. You know, it's interesting because I feel like that's been a thing that came up a lot not only in your life, even in your father's life, like he was imprisoned, he was in horrible conditions, he was tortured, yet, you know, it, it that's what saved him from, yeah. from the Nazis. And then later, you didn't really want to leave Russia, you wanted to, you had your friends, you had your life, but then you left, and then, and then you went through this struggle. And I feel like you started to see, like, I guess hindsight is 2020, you start to see, you understand, you know, you can't connect the dots moving forward, you only connect the dots looking back. Right. So, like there's a snapshot of what you're going through in that moment. Right. And then, but there's a whole movie at the end of the day where you see sometimes where you've gone through a challenge and how it helped you grow even more than you would have if you hadn't gone through it. Yeah. It's funny. My father was, uh, you know, he was joking sometimes and he was saying, they were saying how horrible Stalin was. Stalin killed 20 million people, not only Jews, like he killed innocent people who loved him and who were saying, long live Stalin. And so they were telling how horrible he is. Yeah, he said he was a monster. But he did one thing, good thing to me. He saved me from Hitler. Right. <laughs> I want to ask you that. Even in those conditions, he said, well, Stalin saved me from Hitler. <laughs> he did one good a thing. Silver lining. It's a yeah. silver lining. Okay, yeah. one good thing. On this, on this subject of Bitachan and your struggles, when you hear people complain about other challenges, that just didn't seem as um, intense as, as the things that you've been through. How does that make you feel? Because how would it make you feel if someone shared a challenge with you that wasn't anywhere near what you've been through? I don't think you could compare the challenges. Everybody's unique and you could not minimize somebody else's struggle. Somebody else's little struggle could be a very big one for that person. And you would never know. And you would never know that he goes through that struggle. And some people, like you say, some people cannot, can manage well with 16 children and some people cannot manage with one. So each person is unique. And you cannot say that person who has only one child, for him, that challenge to bring up one child is bigger for somebody else who is smiling and bringing up six children and she's able to do it. You know, I have the lady in Montreal community who is smiling and bringing up 16 beautiful children. I love that because first, it's, I think there's two things that are very important. The first one, is um is attitude obviously like that's also important is how are you going to to confront a challenge 
I also can't help but think of this quote that just because a person carries it well doesn't mean that it isn't heavy. And I feel like it's so profound because it helps us understand that we don't have the full picture. And even though something might appear on the surface to be a smaller challenge, we simply don't know what a person is going through or dealing with beneath the surface. And I think that begs from all of us to it's like to treat someone else the way we would want to be treated if we were going through something similar. Um, I think Edith Eager was saying how she, when she was a therapist, someone came to her and they were abused and they said, but why would I tell you this? You went through the Holocaust. And she said, you can't minimize a person's um, ex- experience of pain. But that's true. I, I think that I thought of that question because of the Edith Eager question. And also you find people today saying, oh, I don't want to hear about that. Like I'm going through something much worse than you, you know? Right, right, but, right. Uh, or even the opposite think- of that, when people say like, oh, how does she do it? Like, you know, and then people start to compare themselves to others in terms of like, you know, how, in terms of their abilities even. And it just shows you that you can't compare yourself. Everyone has their own way of handling different situations. And it's important to recognize that we are unique and there's nobody like us and we do the best we can. I, I think a, a good word for that is is compassion, you know, to have that in mind, to have compassion for another person, even if they're not going through the same challenges as you, or even if you can't relate to it. Right, exactly. So moving on, um, uh, I know that you are a very humble person and you don't like recognition and you would prefer to stay completely under the radar if you could, but I'm not letting that happen today. Like I have to say, I, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this. And I know that it's not an easy thing for you to do, um, but I know that you also know that people hearing your story can be inspired and hopefully learn something. And for that, I know that it's worth it. Um, to put you through the mild discomfort of being here. Um, but anyway, on that note, you there's something that recently we found out about you that we did not know. And that is that you recently received recognition for signing off on over $1 million uh, worth of loans to the needy, to people who needed uh, loans through the Free Hebrew Society. And it's so inspiring because you know, we, first of all, we just discussed in our last episode with Rabbi Tulushkin that providing loans is one of the highest forms of charity of tzedakah. And also it is, it is the highest form. It it is the highest form. Right. And, you know, to take that level of responsibility, it's like a, it's a big risk. And so how did you come to do this? Like, what was your thinking? Like, how did you get to this place? I'll, I'll tell you why I wanted Edith to put this in is because I know that it's not like you and your husband are not are not in business at the moment, like you're on shlachas, doing shlachas work. It's not like you have uh, wealth to hand out to everybody, yet you managed to be generous in this way, um, which I think is just extraordinary and a lesson for all of us. So I I wanted you to share how this came to be. Uh, Well, it's not the credit is definitely not due to me. It was uh, more my husband. Well, it was together, but it was people came to my husband. They recognize him from the newspapers. They know this is the rabbi of Russian community. And people come to him with all the problems. He's a marriage counselor. He's an immigration consultant. He's a housing consultant. He helps with food. 
multi-role man. Multi-role man, really, for everything. They call him for everything. So sometimes they come and they said they're having financial struggles. And how can he help? So we have food banks. We give them food. We have closing depot. We give. He gave at night. He would go and pick up like uh, the food from a wedding or from bar mitzvah, and he would go and distribute it to poor people, helping the poor, helping the people who struggle. It's one of uh, our mission. And well, I packed the parcels too, but he's the okay. The you're person. a team. You work as a team. A team. So <laughs> when people came and they said, "Well, the food really like we really need the money to." to survive that period of time. And those are people that we knew. It wasn't somebody off the street. People that we knew that they are honest people. And there is a, a federation, like a, a central organization, Hebrew Free Loan. It's uh, run by the Jewish community, the general Jewish community, but they need endorsers. They would not give any money without, uh, without the endorsers, somebody who takes responsibility. So, so the people said, well, we don't have endorsers. So my husband and I, we decided that we could take that chance. If we're gonna, if we're gonna lose a lot of money, then uh, I don't know, we'll have to revisit it. But we're not giving to everybody. We're giving to people that we feel are worthy, that we people are, uh, and they will pay back. And if it's gonna become that we gonna have to pay back all the loans, we're going to stop doing it. Yes, we didn't, we couldn't afford. But it's amazing how the people who we gave, they paid everything back. There wow. was only one loan that a person really couldn't pay and we paid for that person. Uh, I had to, because I was uh, like a professional accounting, I worked in, and I had a salary and my husband had a salary. We had to show that we have the means to pay uh, the loan back should they be defaulted, and slowly over the years they called me just last the uh, last month and said, "Do you realize that you signed over a million dollars of loans?" Did you know? No, I had no <laughs> idea. I just did it for so many years, right. but we did it together. We just decided that for logistic reason that it should be me and not my husband, right. but it was from both of us because only one spouse can sign, not both. So wow. it was really from both of us. We had to show our income, both of us. It's a it's an award that belongs to both of us, not to me. Right. I met you and Tati. You both received yeah. the award. Yeah. No, they put my name, right. but the, the reason they put my name because I was the one who signed. Yeah, it just shows that everyone can do something to help other people. Does you don't have to have the always have the physical means to do it, but there's always something that you can do to make a difference. Can I ask you what would you say is one of the greatest lessons you've learned? So I always try to be optimistic and to be uh, to look at the positive side of things. That's a really, you it's know. a great lesson. <clears throat> yeah, so, so inspiring. And that's true, Betachan. In the really, moment. There really is an opportunity in every challenge. Yeah. It might be hard and also tonight. in the moment of the challenge, not necessarily like knowing what the outcome is going to be, but having that trust in Hashem that this is what Hashem wants me to, to face right now. It's an honor for us to be interviewing you, somebody who has true betachan. Yes, I can attest to that. My, my mother is a very humble person, Ma. Um, she probably doesn't like hearing this right now, but there's a <laughs> lot there's a lot that people don't know about her. Um, and one of the fun facts about her is that she was actually, or is actually, I should say, a poet. In Russia, she wrote several poems that were published that won awards. And so when she came to Canada, like uh, quite a few years into her being here, 
she wrote a poem that eventually was published in some of the Jewish magazines. And, um, and I thought it was great. I loved it. It's a poem about her story and it's just so inspirational. It really encapsulates the importance of seeing the good in every situation of, of the importance of faith and trust um, and staying true to your faith, especially to Yiddishkeit. So anyway, I'm, I'm wondering if you could share the poem that you wrote with us. I wrote it in Russian first, and then my children speak Russian, but not enough to understand the like you know the language the nuances. So nuances. I decided I'm going to try in English, even so, like my English isn't perfect, but I'm going to try. This is uh, one of the few uh, poems that I wrote. Uh, in English, actually. It's a story of uh, my father and my life. It's called Tribute to My Father. Their life got brighter when I came in cold Siberian exile to them. They gave me all the love they could. They had to starve to give us food. My brother, so mature at four, took care of me and did his chores when our parents had to work. At minus 50 outside, my mother walked to bring us light, to bring us food we should survive, walked to the doctor's 30 miles. My father's crime was, he believed that we must learn and we must live the way the Torah tells us to, the only way to be a Jew. He was arrested with his friends, sent for 10 years to labor camps, to Varkuta, where the world ends. At first, they asked him to agree. Tell on your friends and you'll be free. Just name the friends with whom you learn and you'll be free. Then he was tortured in a cell and he would yell but did not tell. They tortured him, but he rebelled and did not tell. Ten years in camps my father lost. His loved ones vanished in the Holocaust, but he survived and he remained a Torah Jew in every way. Five years in permanent exile. He never lost his love for life. He knew the future will be bright. There will be light. God heard his prayers. Stalin died and we were freed from the exile. Came to the city where I grew. Came to Rostov to start anew. We went to school. Our parents worked. And every Shabbos, father walked. He walked kilometers to Shul to read the Torah to the Jews. We played, we laughed, and we had friends. We thought the childhood never ends. Our aunts sent parcels from abroad that eased our lives and helped a lot. We were the only ones who knew King David, Mordechai the Jew, stories of Humash and Tanakh. But no, for him, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. We said, Opa, forget the past. You have your freedom. You have us. We have good food, a place to live, and university degrees. That wasn't all he had hoped for, had hoped and prayed so long before. I wasn't free to be a Jew the way the Torah tells us to. He said, I can't forget the past, but brighter future waits for us. I will be happy on a day my children leave the Torah way. To leave this country, we must fight. Our Rebbe knows of our plight. He's many thousands miles away, but he's guiding us each day. My dear sister heard the news. We'll soon be joining other Jews. My children will be free at last. World greatest tzaddik is with us. The Rebbe helped my aunt a lot to bring us finally abroad. A place where Jews are free today to serve Hashem the Torah way. 
with Rebbe's blessings, we've achieved new ways of life we've learned to live. We both got married and had kids, brought Father Nachas his last years. On Shabbos, we would sing our song. We loved my husband like his son. He loved our children like his own. He died the day my child was born. He left us for a better world, but still today we cry and mourn, and we remember all his words, remember mitzvahs he would do, the price he paid to be a Jew. We all are trying every day to live our lives the Torah way, the way our Rebbe wants us to, to make my father's dream come true. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. He passed away. The day your sister was born? Yeah. His name was Tzvi Hirsch, and so Tzvi is named after him. Oh, wow. In the same wow. hospital. And his last words were Mazel Tov. Wow. Mazel Tov. Well, yeah. you should continue to have good Mazel. You know, after hearing your story and hearing this poem, it's really heartfelt and what a lesson for all of us not to forget our past. We're here today learning from you. And I want to thank you for that and to share with us, like we always end in our podcast, with a favorite quote, if you have one. Well, I think uh, yesterday was history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. And that's why we call it present. Yeah, that's my favorite quote. Why is it your favorite quote? We live for today. We live, we thank Hashem every day. We wake up in the morning, we say, Moedani, we, we thank Hashem for every day He has given us. We don't take it for granted. I think, I think it really does reflect you because you're saying yesterday is history. It's history and we've got to remember yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow is a mystery. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but you have the faith and the trust that whatever is happening now in the present is meant to be. And um, I, I'm so I'm so honored to have been able to hear your story. That we have Ida, my podcast host and dear friend, who is now sending this message out to all our listeners, so that we all can learn from the past and from your family in how to be strong, have faith, and live a life in the present, a meaningful life. Meaningful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.